Hello, and welcome back to what promises to be the most visually stimulating podcast of kids' arts that I have ever done. I have a very special guest joining me today. It's my pleasure to welcome everyone. As a reminder, Kids Arts is a podcast found on Blue Lake Drive's network. Visit bluelakedrive.com for all your podcast needs. And without further ado, I'm very pleased to be bringing to you Holman Wang. He is a lawyer, he's a father, he's an author. He's the whole package, and he joins us from Vancouver. Welcome, Holman. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you, Ed? Good. Thank you very much. I just mentioned a number of uh, the, the titles that you have. So fill us in first. Which role that you occupy is the most demanding to you? Well, I guess they all <laughs> they all fill in my day. I'm kind of a lawyer by day and uh, children's creator by night, so... You know, it all started uh, probably about 10 years ago, and uh, I have been burning the candle at both ends ever since. Um, and when I started making kids' books, it was, you know, definitely evening and weekend work. Uh, I had a small child at the time, so uh, I've been taking on all these roles simultaneously for a decade now. You do a fantastic uh, balancing act. You're very impressive. And I should explain, you aren't just an author. A creator is a great way to describe it. Uh, I perceive you as an artist. Uh, you know, I, I remember studying in school, William Blake, and he wrote and published his own stuff and illustrated his own stuff. And you've uh, enveloped a lot of that as well. And what I mean by that is you write stories, you do needle felting, scene sets where you photograph the characters that you've depicted. What do you find to be the most challenging part of your creative experience? Well, you know, I think actually the most challenging aspect of the work is the part that's the hardest to control and that's sometimes some of the outdoor location photography that i do because you're dealing with the elements right. um and you know i do a lot of shooting around vancouver as you know there's a lot of televisions and uh, sort of television shows and movies that are filmed in vancouver we've got a lot of natural backdrops city backdrops so sometimes the hardest parts are just finding um the natural backdrops that um that sort of create recreate the ambiance of the original story that uh, that we're trying to um, you know sort of uh, repackage and reconvey. So just by way of uh, um, you know introduction, you know my brother and I have created a series of board books called uh, Cozy Classics, and there's twelve in this series, and they retell um, classic, classic novels yes. into just twelve words and twelve images. We also have in a uh, an abridged Star Wars series. Sorry, I'm just trying to get my... Don't apologize. No, and I'll, I'll, as you're also flipping between slides, I'll, I'll fill in the gaps. So uh, for listeners who uh, are maybe just listening on podcast, what uh, Holman has done is he's called up uh, the covers of his books. He's been kind enough to share them. And he takes, you know, Empire Strikes Back or Great Expectations. And would you say whittles them down to 12 words or encapsulates, you know, right. one twelfth so of the story. Go ahead. What we've created are effectively um, sort of ironic abridgments, and uh, they're all ages board books. So we retell these stories in just twelve words and twelve images, and um, they're word primers for really young children. They're storytelling vehicles for slightly older children, sort of the you know 
uh, three to seven set. And then they become ironic abridgments for teenagers and adults because, you know, we already know what the stories are. And so we consider them all ages board books. And, you know, for those of you who can see uh, the screen, uh, the images that we create are needle felted. And what I do, my process is to create little figures, um, uh, build sets or do location photography, and then, um, you know, finally do photography. So, now, yeah. for those that are what, uh, not able to, again, see, you had Luke and R2-D2, Luke Skywalker and R2-D2 in previous photo, and it, the, the word was simply boy. That's right. And I think it's important for the parents listening to know that, like, it's amazing. You've taken one word from one story, and there, and there we see green uh, from Wizard of Oz. So parents shouldn't always be pulling teeth when it comes to writing stories and creating things with their children. Maybe green to them represents something big and massive or more than just five letters on a page. Wouldn't you agree? Right. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the, the idea behind our books is that we want to, first of all, we wanted to share words in a way that was not con just merely uh, in categories because most word books that introduce words to young children are organized around concepts like numbers, colors, shapes, barnyard animals. And we thought, why can't we uh, organize words around narrative, the idea of, of a story? And so these words are, are just prompts for parents to storytell themselves, you know, to fill in uh, the story as they remember them, as they imagine them. It doesn't matter. There isn't any rule that you need to be devoted to the original story uh, and an accurate retelling. So there's a kind of play that goes on, uh, as you're suggesting, an interplay between what the kid understands of the word, what the image tells about the word, and what the adult understands about the story. And so that creates uh, a rich reading and storytelling experience that could change every time. I completely agree. I will change words. I'll add more description, less description if the kid just wants a book and uh, to go to to sleep earlier. Uh, sometimes I'll even read in, in other accents just to liven up something that maybe is getting a little bit stale but still has uh, good value. So again, you touched on something when you first started speaking with me, talking about walking around Vancouver. Do you find, uh, I, I know you're, you're a father, if you're going to a ball diamond, if you're going for a park, do you ever find now that your kids are, are, are reading and seeing uh, your work that they are giving you suggestions as to what could potentially be a, a backdrop or a landscape in some of your work? Well, you know, I think it's interesting because I don't know that they give me suggestions directly like, hey, dad, you should put this into a book. It's not like that. It's more that um, I'm, I'm seeing the world through their eyes uh, as much as my own when it comes to creating work. So, um, you know, I recently wrote a middle grade novel and that's just because they're nine and 10 now, and they've outgrown picture books and board books. And so they want to experience literature in a different way, children's literature in a different way. And I find myself gravitating towards producing the kind of art that they want to consume at their particular age. So, you know, there are children's authors who will do board books for their entire career, or picture books for their entire career, and they don't get into long form writing. Whereas um, I do feel inspired by my children in the sense of, hey, what are they reading? And how can I entertain them at this particular age that they're at? Okay, so they're 
the, the natural aging process is uh, generating some um, new avenues for yourself. Is there a dimension to your uh, creative side that perhaps, uh, you know, you haven't explored enough, but you know it's there right below the surface? I, I've, I've looked at your, your fantastic, the cozy classics, the Star Wars yarns, um, great job, mom, great job, dad. Is there, is there a horror film uh, in the back of your mind somewhere, or is there a uh, detective novel that uh, is is uh, in, in the recesses of your mind? Well, you know that's that's an interesting question. Uh, on one, you know, on one level, I'd have to say that um, uh, my brother, my twin brother, he is um, a creative writing professor in the United States. He teaches at Ithaca College in New York, and he writes literary fiction for adults. And so in a strange way, you know, we're twin brothers. And so sometimes we, we like doing the same things. Other times we give each other our own space. And I don't want to tread on his uh, sort of writing for adults. And so that's one reason why I kind of uh, steer clear of... Stay in of, your lane, yeah. Yeah, stay in my lane, you know, I, in terms of horror movies or other things that might be meant for, for, uh, uh, for adults. But in terms of what's just under the surface, it's not so much those other writing projects, but one thing that is under the surface is, is drawing. And now I used to be quite a good drawer when I was a kid and I can show, you know, some, uh, this is, uh, an illustration that I did, uh, in my twenties. Uh, it's just a, a charcoal drawing. These are some sure. drawings that I did of my kids, uh, recently. And honestly, these are the only two drawings that, um, I have done in the last 20 years. And they're quite representational. It's difficult for people who are listening to, to see these images, but, uh, oh, sorry, I haven't shared my screen. I'm just talking. No, I was wondering when I was going to get called up. <laughs> <laughs> so here, okay. here, is the, uh, here is the drawing that I did in my 20s um, of, of just some random woman that I copied out of a magazine. And I literally ha didn't draw anything for another 20 years. And then I did these drawings here of my daughter and of my son playing baseball. And... Um, you know, this is the kind of thing that I would like to bring to uh, my children's art. But at the same time, uh, you know, I feel a little bit out of practice. And um, perhaps this is not, you know, this kind of highly representational style um, um, is, is just not the kind of work that's necessarily um, uh, wanted in children's literature. So anyways, if there was something that I wanted to turn to that's sort of under the surface to answer your question, it'd probably be, uh, trying traditional drawing or trying digital drawing, which is a, a whole new uh, experience. Um, I, I bought myself a Wacom Cintiq, which is a drawing kind of tablet, and uh, I've, I've found it challenging to, to, to learn to, to master that. Now, before we started recording, I uh, discussed with Holman, for anyone listening, that we want to do a two-part podcast. So maybe the digital work, that'll become part three, or you're welcome to come back <laughs> on the show anytime down the road. Uh, you mentioned your brother and uh, twin brother. So obviously growing up, you guys went through every phase practically simultaneously. Did you find your parents cultivated your creative side, your writing side? And if so, how did they do it so successfully? Um, you know, in my case, it was a little bit different because uh, I grew up in an immigrant family. You know, I came to Canada when I was one and a half. And my parents were the kinds of parents who uh, uh, understood traditional jobs <laughs> as the only ones that existed. You know, doctor, lawyer, accountant. Uh, to them, being an artist was not a quote-unquote real job. 
And so they never discouraged us from creative pursuits when we were kids. They sent us to, you know, creative summer camps where we would learn arts and that kind of thing. But they didn't think that that was actually a career move to devote uh, too much time or energy to the arts. So in a strange way, I would say that my brother and I uh, kind of were creative in opposition to my parents, <laughs> uh, you know, pressures to, to uh, uh, you know, go traditional, uh, go down traditional routes of education. So, you know, my own experience with my own kids is that, you know, I would like them to draw more, uh, but they, they don't. And so I think that you can encourage kids to pursue arts within uh, a range of their own talents and abilities. But at the end of the day, uh, I think you need to know who that person is. And some kids uh, are highly artistic and are interested. And some kids um, may just have other, other intelligences and other interests. Okay. You called up those sketches that you drew. Did your parents yeah. save any of your early writing or, or uh, artwork or anything like that that they still have today? Uh, I don't think that they did, but I certainly did. So there's still this whole bunch of stuff in my parents' crawl space that I saved. I don't think my parents were sentimental that way. Uh, like I said, I don't think, you know, I think parents these days are very alive to, um, you know, their kids' artistic, uh, creative production and sort of marveling at that and appreciating what, you know, the kind of independent thought and creativity that goes into generating these pieces. Honestly, my parents were just focused on, um, making know, their way in a new country and yeah, making their way in a new country. And new they're not, yeah, they're just not, uh, they weren't focused on, um, what we were producing as, as something that was, you know, that needed to be archived and saved. They didn't have that kind of sentimentality. And in fairness, my parents, I'm not sure, uh, that many parents, uh, you know, the people in their seventies now, I don't know that, I don't know how many of them grew up with that kind of sentimentality. I think that, uh, we as parents, uh, are sort of, s sort of stopping the smell of roses, which includes appreciating our kids' artistic production. What did you find to be the largest challenge for, um, the immigrant family that you are a part of, uh, in terms of, uh, achieving your sort of artistic freedom or goals or what, whatever it was. Did you have any hurdles or did you find the, uh, the environment here in Canada to be quite conducive to, uh, to your self-expression? Well, I think th that's a great question. And I think there was always the tension between the message that you're getting from uh, your edu the educational institutions and uh, what I was getting from, from my own family. So, you know, the public schools that I went to were very good about uh, encouraging uh, creativity. When they saw my artistic creativity, whether it was just like, you know, a science project about hippopotamuses, I remember that doing that in grade three and, and doing some great drawings of, of hip hippopotamuses and getting a lot of praise from the teacher. So that, you know, feeds your desire to continue to produce that art. Whereas that wasn't necessarily the feedback that I got from home. My parents more interested in ultimately the ABCs because they're looking down the road and saying, well, is that going to get you a good job down the road? Because again, they're on this kind of trajectory of trying to make it in this country. So, uh, so I, you know, there was always that tension. And even in my own family now, there's a tension. Uh, and I think that a lot of creative people feel this, this balance between, you know, providing for your family and, you know, bringing home the bread 
and uh, finding time for your own personal pursuits. You know, lots of people consider uh, art to be a personal fulfillment, but ne not necessarily a monetary or, you know, financial one. So there's always that tension. So your parents were more concerned about wh whether or not you understood if the hippopotamus fit in the food chain, and your <laughs> teachers were more interested in how good of a job you did drawing said hippopotamuses. Okay, uh, yeah. very, very cool. My question uh, now uh, spins a little bit. Uh, needle felting. For anyone that yeah. isn't aware, uh, can you please explain it to, to people and just talk to us about how you got involved in it, uh, challenges, maybe times when you thought, uh, this isn't for you, but you stuck with it. Sure. I mean, I could even do a little bit of a demo here for you as well. Like needle felting uh, starts with uh, wool and yeah. this is what's called wool roving. And that's nothing more than uh, a word that describes a long string of this wool. The wool is actually in various short segments, but it's all combed together and you buy this in really, really long strands. <clears throat> and if you take some of it off, you know, if I were to spin this, wool quite tightly that's just a piece of yarn okay right. so yarn is nothing more than wool that's tightly spun but in this particular case i'm not i'm not knitting the yarn i'm felting the yarn and felt is nothing more than a word that means tangled up wool and one of the techniques of tangling up the wool is using uh, a very sharp needle that has barbs yeah, on good. it yeah. specialized felting needle and then what you do is you uh, you stab the wool again and again and again. And what those barbs do is they grab onto the wool fibers and you're literally pushing the wool fibers through every time you stab. So you're continually uh, densifying and matting the wool together. And this is a dry technique. And even after a short period of time, you've seen that I, I've converted that long, pliable, malleable piece of wool into something that's starting to take shape. Right. And uh, if you keep doing that for uh, many, many, many hours, you get to construct figures and you get to sculpt. And, and uh, for those who have a visual on this podcast, there's a, 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 a miniature version of me that I felt it for one of my books because uh, uh, the books star uh, me and my own family members. So um, it's, a, it's a long, laborious process of matting, <laughs> excuse me, matting wool together. Do you ever get asked if those are voodoo dolls? I, I, I do get asked if these are voodoo dolls, but, uh, you know, there's nobody in particular. I, I, I wouldn't stick needles into my own family members so it's, uh, or myself. So there's, I, I don't spend the time creating uh, people that I dislike. So I had to ask. I apologize. Uh, and for anyone who's uh, wondering, they're saying, well, why, why does he make these dolls? You, what you do is you then, uh, to illustrate the, the books that you've worked on, you then take uh, the, the figures, the characters, you place them in various scene sets, and then you yourself photograph them. Again, completing that full circle artist idea that we, we talked about at the beginning of our show. And uh, I've seen some of the looks of, of what you've created, and it's very, very impressive. Yes, I mean, um, when we came up with uh, the idea to abridge classic novels into just 12 words and 12 uh, images, this was our very first, um, you know, book idea. Um, you know, we wanted to come up with a unique illustrative style. The, you know, the problem was that I was a lawyer, my brother's a creative writing professor, and neither of us had really um, 
done art in, in many, many years. And we didn't think that traditional two-dimensional illustration uh, was going to help us stand out. And so what we decided to do was, you know, I just jumped onto YouTube because I heard of this technique of needle felting and I uh, taught myself to needle felt and decided that we were going to do some photography and create these images in a three-dimensional way. So for example, I'm showing an image here of uh, two felt figures. They're in a, uh, a model forest. There's some tree branches. There's some real dirt. There's some model grass. And there's a real rock pit in the middle of the, of the set. And I light a real fire and I'm able to get a shot like this for the word camp uh, from uh, the adventures of Tom Sawyer. So, uh, you know, th this was a, a process that we uh, decided to go through. And when we um, published our books, uh, people were really, really excited by the combination of uh, classics for babies plus this needle felted set making photography technique. It, it looks terrific. What I wanted to touch on was uh, we saw the sketch you did of your son playing baseball. Yes. Art is, uh, I, I saw the supplies in the background of, of that scene. And what I wanted to ask you was, what do you find to be the most expensive aspect of creating? Because my kids have colored pencils, scrap paper, colored pencil, uh, uh, colored paper, sorry, <laughs> scrap paper. And what I'm getting at is art supplies now, they're, they're plentiful and readily affordable. And, mm -hmm. and anyone who uh, wants to get their kid involved in uh, illustrating, creating, uh, you can see one child's uh, art over my uh, shoulder. It's it's quite affordable, don't you find? Absolutely. When it comes to needle felting, if you were to get your child into this technique, you know, these needles, um, you can get them at specialty, you know, sort of wool shops. Uh, you need to get yourself a piece of foam, which could be, you know, something from an old couch, you know, that you're about to throw out. And then you need to get wool roving, which is, you know, uh, not particularly expensive. You can get, uh, you know, about five yards of, of, of roving for maybe uh, five, seven bucks. So the supplies to do needle felting are not expensive. Where it becomes expensive is some of the technology to actually create publishable images. You need a, you need a fairly expensive camera, you need lenses, you need tripods. Um, you know, I need a fancy computer to do some kind of the sort of the post-production digital editing to correct for um, you know, incorrect lighting or, uh, you know, dealing with issues like contrast and that kind of thing. So, uh, but for a child, if they want to explore needle felting, it's certainly uh, an affordable uh, activity. And if you live in an area where you don't have wool stores around, you know, online, uh, you can get all these supplies as well. Have you uh, ever been approached, uh, you know, we, we talked off air about uh, speaking with editors and whatnot, and nobody's going to be perfect at everything. And you have a lot of different disciplines that you uh, explore and investigate. Has anyone said, you know, uh, you're, you're a good writer, your, your ideas are terrific, uh, your, your work with needle felting is uh, wonderful, but we need to get you some photography lessons. And I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to knock you is what you're doing. But what I want parents to understand is uh, even professional actors take acting classes. And it's important to, uh, to listen to somebody else and be edited or brush up on an area that uh, needs a little work. Right. Um, I mean, that's an interesting uh, question. 
And I have never been asked to take, you know, professional photography lessons, although goodness knows I need them. No, no, <laughs> because no, no. You my do photography, a no, no. The photography part of it, I, I will be perfectly candid and say that my aptitude with the camera itself is low, except that I am pretty good with the post-production stuff. So the stuff that is not right at the beginning, I'm pretty good at cleaning up in, for example, Photoshop. But I'll, I'll give you an example. When we do a licensed project like um, Star Wars, and I'll show yes. you an image here. Okay. And this is, uh, you know, when, when, uh, when you do a licensed project like Star Wars, uh, they don't ask you to do photography lessons. They just expect you to produce, you know, images that they're going to accept at the end of the day. So here I'm making a Tauntaun, and it starts with a styrofoam core. And then what I do is I, you can actually needle felt right over uh, the styrofoam. So what you do is you stab the wool and it goes, the fibers go into the styrofoam. So then you can, you can cover up uh, the styrofoam. And I've added arms and horns and there's Luke sitting on the Tauntaun. And then I brought my uh, model up to a snowy mountain in the wintertime in Vancouver and got this final shot of Luke on a Tauntaun. So this image you deliver to the publisher if you've promised them you're going to deliver this amazing you know star wars needle felted book you better be able to deliver so uh thankfully for me uh i've never had editors say hey look your images aren't up to snuff but that certainly is possible and we've had images uh rejected because they didn't like them for the way we compose them or the subject matter. And so when you work with a licensor like Lucasfilm, uh, Disney, they certainly control the process. Yes. Uh, I mean, they have their, uh, their uh, image to maintain as well. So I do understand that. But what dawned on me in our, in the, our conversation, Holman, and I'm speaking with Holman Wang. Once again, I, I strongly invite you to check out his website, holmanwang.com. He has uh, a number of resources there, the books, the collaborations that uh, you really should uh, take a peek at. But you, again, going back to you're in this immigrant family, your parents really want you to go in a mainstream fashion. You obviously have this strong artistic lean. Mm -hmm. you wound up going to law school and you're trying to enter into a business partnership. And what I'm saying is parents, you can be, you can rest assured that any educational experience, be it art, law, business will pay off down the road for your young creative child. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, I absolutely agree. In fact, you know, on that point, I should probably, uh, you know, detail some of my educational background because um, I went to uh, undergrad, I did a BSc, I wound up getting a teaching degree after that. And then I decided, well, I'm not quite ready to teach. I was 24 at the time. And you know, I'm not quite ready to go into the working world. Uh, I still want to do something creative. So I thought the balance between professionalism and creativity was to become an architect. So I went to architecture school um, for the design program, I dropped out of that after one year, and then stuck around and just did a master's of architecture history. Apropos of nothing, I just wanted to get a master's degree. And then I worked for a couple of years as an English language teacher. And then only when I was 30 years old, did I go back to uh, law school and get a law degree. But did I waste any of that education? Absolutely not, because I do school presentations now as a kid-led author. And my training as a teacher helps me communicate with students. Um, I'm able to review my 
um, contracts with publishers because I have a legal background. Um, I have a science undergrad, and when I do my uh, photography, sometimes there's a lot of science involved in terms of uh, creating special effects. So, you know, everything that you learn uh, throughout your life, uh, you can always bring to bear to your current projects. And I'm, I'm, I'm a strong believer in that for sure. Fantastic. That's exactly how you answered my next question in the middle of, uh, of your revelation. So, hey, you're also very efficient. Thank you for doing my work for me. <laughs> you mentioned you're a teacher. Uh, you, you go around and speak. What is the main message you pass along to parents and educators? And I don't want, if, if you, uh, if you're on a speaking engagement, I don't want the, uh, all the secrets borne out. But uh, if you can encapsulate uh, some key points that parents need to know uh, as, as they're nurturing their creative child along their journey. Yeah. So, you know, I'll, I'll show you a couple of more slides for those who can see some uh, visuals. But when I was a kid, I was a fairly creative kid. There's an image of my brother and I making our own Halloween costumes. I'm the giant. Not store-bought, parents. Not store-bought. Let the kids make them. Yes, yeah. go on. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Let the kids make them. So, And then this is in grade seven. Uh, this was sports day in East Vancouver. And our house team was called the Astros. So my brother and I, without our parents' help, we built this space shuttle float. It had wheels. You can push it around. And this is the stuff we were able to make in grade seven. So... You know, wow. um, and, and that's just the kind of artistic stuff that I love to do. And so my message for, uh, you know, kids when I do speaking, speaking engagements is maybe it's sports, maybe it's dance, what, uh, maybe it's art, whatever you love to do as a kid, don't forget those skills because you might be able to use them later. You know, you might go off on a, a tangent in university and study something that's uh, unrelated to your a quote unquote real passion, but ultimately there may be a, a time and an opportunity where those skills will be necessary again. And so that's, uh, I, I'm sort of an example of that. Uh, I got into creating books for children, uh, partly because I was so artistically frustrated working as a lawyer uh, for many years and just feeling like I need a side project here. I need to, I need an outlet. And then all those, and then people think, well, how are you able to you know, just teach yourself to needle felt? How are you able to teach yourself to uh, do digital photography and to build sets? And uh, I always think, well, I learned all those skills when I was a kid. And, you know, you may have heard about the 10,000 hour rule where, uh, you know, there's a suggestion that for you to become an expert in anything, you need to put in 10,000 hours. Well, you know, I put in my 10,000 hours when I was a kid, uh, not necessarily through my 20s or 30s, but way back when. And my message to kids is, hey, you know, you might leave those skills for a period in your life. You can always come back to them. Yes, uh, you're referencing Malcolm Gladwell's theory that 10,000 hours uh, devoted right. to anything makes you an expert. And I think his examples included the Beatles and playing two shows in one night because they travel around and the computers that were given to Bill Gates's classroom. And he also got that in grade school. You started yours, as we saw with the, the space shuttle, uh, doing your stuff in the, the seventh grade. Here's a, an important part in any show that I do where I'm speaking with somebody who is an artist. Um, can you explain to parents how important it is to allow their children to fail? Because you didn't wake up and roll out of bed with a law degree. You didn't uh, go for a jog and at the finish line suddenly have an ability to do uh, digital photography or needle felting. So over the course of your 10,000 hours, Please detail some struggles or challenges that you had 
and you overcame. You know, absolutely. Um, I feel like I uh, have failed and continue to fail in this journey because, you know, I'll, I'll show you uh, something that I did as um, a first project. And uh, I actually published a nonfiction book called Bathroom Stuff back in 2001. And it detailed the history of all the things in your bathroom. This was actually the first book that I published. Uh, it wasn't for kids, but it was a nonfiction book. I uh, talked about the history of things like sinks and toilets and mirrors and antiperspirants. And it, uh, it was released, I think, two months after 9-11. 9-11. So it was, the timing was terrible. It was not the time uh, in the world where sort of slightly ironic and cheeky books were doing very well. The world was a little bit more earnest place at the time. And the book failed. And so that was my first publishing venture. And I had to lick my wounds. And, and then I uh, published my first children's book about, uh, you know, over 10 years later. So there's certainly, you know, I could have been scared off by publishing. I could have thought, well, this is not for me. It's not going to work. But there are certainly lots of times where you have to just put your failures aside, learn from them, and, and uh, move ahead. And the, the one lesson that I learned from publishing this nonfiction book was that I think authors sometimes think that once you produce the book, that's the end of the journey, that the, you know, the the inherent merit of that book is going to rocket it to success. Well, that's not how it works. You know, like you're just beginning once the book comes out. There's so much self-promotion and publicity and marketing that you have to do. And uh, that was the lesson that I learned. And 10 years later, that was the lesson that I applied. And it, it helped me tremendously to launch my kids' books in a much more active way uh, instead of sort of sitting back and thinking that the world was just going to love my books. Objects in motion stay in motion, and you've certainly been in motion. But after the failure, and I, I, I'm not calling it a failure, I'm merely using your own word. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, after that, that first go-around, when did the, the, the motion kick back in? When did the inspiration reignite? When did you suddenly gain momentum again uh, in, in your creative pursuit? And how did you achieve it? So, so after the uh, nonfiction book, you know, didn't find much success, then it was a period where I decided, well, you know, I live in Vancouver. Vancouver is an expensive city. Maybe I need to straighten myself out and, uh, and, and worry a little bit about money. Because up to my late 20s, I was just like, yeah, I don't really need to worry about financial stuff. <laughs> so then I went back to law school. And so that kind of, you know, in a way, the failure was an impetus to to look at, you know, life is always a pendulum, right? You go back and forth, back and forth. And so when you tried the artistic thing for a while, it didn't work out, then all of a sudden, financial security becomes a little bit more important. So then I wound up uh, focusing on that aspect of my life. And then once that got sorted, and I had a nice stable career as a lawyer, then you felt that itch again. It's like, wow, okay, I'm, I'm going uh, to this big downtown law firm, I'm working long hours, now where's my life heading? <laughs> right. You know, now I've got the financial part locked down. Uh, is this what it's all about? And then you realize, well, the pendulum has swung too far that way. This is not what life is all about. It, there has to be uh, something for my soul. And, and, and for me, that's creativity. For some uh, other person, it could be a different pursuit. But for me, it was to be creative. And so 
that's how that pendulum seemed to swing back and forth. It's fantastic. I want to thank you, Holman Wang. You've been fantastic today. Uh, you're welcome to come back on the show anytime. And I believe uh, you bet I'm going to hold you to that uh, that promise of doing a second and then a third part when the digital uh, work starts to come around. His name is Holman Wang. He's a lawyer, author, fiber artist, model maker, and father. HolmanWang.com uh, is a website you should check out. And I invite you to look at uh, all of his different books. Parents, there's uh, Great Job Mom, Great Job Dad. They're the, part of the Great Job Books collection, the Cozy Classics, where uh, the, the 12 different words encapsulate uh, War and Peace and Great Expectations, for example. And uh, for those, you, you may have heard of this, uh, this, this franchise, Star Wars. Well, he's got Star Wars Epic Yarns also there. Uh, again, thank you very much, Holman. I really appreciate you uh, visiting the Kids Arts Podcast. You've been a terrific guest. Thanks, Ed. It's been my pleasure. And uh, I, I certainly think you're, you're so much like a terrific left-handed hitter based on your sketch. <laughs> and between the Star Wars, your space shuttle, and that sketch of your daughter, I think she's got a future uh, somewhere in space, or maybe she'll straighten out the Space Force program that inevitably will be a giant mess. So that's right. <laughs> uh, HolmanWang.com. You're a fantastic fella. Thanks for your time today uh, and, and enjoy yourself. Thanks, Ed. For our audio engineer, Frank Frenzy, who always does a fantastic job of making us sound good. Thank you very much for visiting Kids Arts, the podcast. It's found on BlueLakeDrive.com. Take care, everybody.